I remember that day speaking to a gentleman probably in his 70s. And, you know, we were joking. We're talking about, okay, who's going to whose house for the hurricane party, this and that. And he looked at me and he said, you know, man, you need to take this very seriously. He called it Mama. He didn't call it Miami. He called it Mama. Miami has been through these before. And I can tell you that this is something very, very serious. Trust me, I've been through these things. And it's going to be something that will change your life. And I said, you know, sir, I understand. We're doing what we can. And he just gave me a little smirk. He goes, you don't understand yet, but you will. This is Remembering Andrew, a special production of WLRN Miami Herald News. I'm Alicia Zuckerman. And I'm Kenny Malone. It's been 20 years since Hurricane Andrew turned South Florida upside down. And over the next hour, we're bringing you the personal stories behind one of the biggest events in the history of South Florida. Saturday, the 22nd of August. Meteorological authorities announced that a hurricane named Andrew is in the vicinity. This is Philip Grice. In 1992, he was the British Consul General in Miami, keeping track of every minute of the storm's progress. Throughout the show, you'll be hearing excerpts from Grice's report. You'll also hear answering machine messages, home video, archival news footage, 911 calls, and personal recollections taking you from the morning of Sunday, August 23, 1992, to the height of Hurricane Andrew. We're also telling the story of how Andrew changed the lives of two individuals. Jenny Del Campo, a typical teenager living in Homestead. I had posters and lots of pictures, collages of my friends. Not too many men posters. My dad wasn't, wasn't a fan of the guy posters. And Brian Norcross, a TV weatherman. I was a sciencey person, but I also uh, was really a broadcaster. 6.15 a.m., August 23, 1992. The alarm clock goes off at Brian Norcross's house in Coconut Grove. He takes a shower, grabs his shampoo, toothbrush, three shirts and ties, no suits. Now, the decision to not wear a suit was about the tone, that we're down to business here. This is, we're in it with you. We're rolling up our sleeves. Brian gets in his car, heads to the studios of WTVJ, Channel 4. Two and a half years earlier, WTVJ decided to become the storm station. They hired Brian Norcross. They poured money into Miami's first storm center, where Brian could simultaneously monitor the weather and broadcast live. So on the day that I premiered, we ran Ethel Merman singing, Everything is Coming Up Roses, you know, curtain up, light the lights. And uh, we revealed the storm center for the first time. And we made a big deal out of that. To get ready, Brian immersed himself in hurricane lore. Florida Hurricane and Disaster, 1926, L.F. Reardon. One of Brian's favorite books was L.F. Reardon's diary on surviving a major hurricane in Coral Gables. I have just come through hell. Before placing the day and date at the head of this chronicle, I had to stop and think, cudgel my brain, ponder. I'm not normal. I'm not sure that I'm perfectly sane. My body feels as it would after 10 rounds of fighting or three football games. You read that, and it's just not hard to translate to individuals in a modern city and the fact that that back then there were 100,000, 120,000 people, where now there were 2 million people, and you can just see how magnified the problem is. But in Dade County, an understandable complacency had set in. The last serious hurricane to hit was 27 years earlier, Hurricane Betsy. L.F. Reardon's storm happened before hurricanes even had names. Seven times 
a hurricane came directly over downtown Miami in the 20th century. There's no other place like that. Hurricanes are a part of life here. There's just absolutely no doubt about it. Gee, I wonder what's going to happen if one of those happens again, because nobody's talking about it. Nobody's thinking about it. It's not part of life. Now it's late August, almost halfway through hurricane season, and there hasn't been a single named storm. WTVJ has spent almost three seasons as a hurricane station during a time when no serious hurricanes hit South Florida. A month earlier, a Miami Herald poll ranked Brian Norcross as fourth out of the region's five TV weathermen. He has a job interview in New York set for the next day, August 24th. Yeah, the thinking was that all this effort we put into raising the profile of the weather and doing hurricanes just wasn't working. It wasn't moving the needle, as they say today. Then Andrew shows up on the radar. Brian cancels his job interview in New York. Around 8 a.m. on August 23rd, he pulls into the parking lot of WTVJ in downtown Miami. He begins the very difficult task of trying to convince people to take Hurricane Andrew seriously. It's going to do beyond major devastating action. In fact, it's not even no police officer, no fire department, no Coast Guard, no nobody is going to jeopardize their lives for people that decide too late to get out. You are on your own. And friends, it is going to happen now for Dade County. Now, when you see us move and you're watching us, we want you to move to your safe spot. So we're all staring at the the TV, and and at one point someone says, Come HBO, quitame esto. In West Miami, eight miles from WTVJ Studios, Danny Rivero and his family are huddled in the living room, staring at the television screen. And then everyone says, no, 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 what, como que change the channel? We're going to watch this. This is what we're watching. This is what we're going to do all day. And there was a big verbal assault going on. Everyone was screaming at each other. It was very loud. It was very... Cuban. (laughs) And um, the verdict came down that we're just going to watch this screen that might as well be blank and just listen to the voice coming out of it telling us that we're all going to die, that we're all going to be wiped off the face of the earth tomorrow. And then you hear some some chatter in the background like, I remember watching Brian Norcross and then just You know, the whole day is set up with, you know, the coverage of the impending storm and what you should do. As Andrew approaches, 17-year-old Jenny Del Campo is home watching TV in Homestead. And I remember seeing my zip code. It just scrolled by and I was like, 33031? I'm like, that's us. And I I told my dad, I said, listen, they're evacuating this area, this zip code. We shouldn't stay here. And he laughed at me. And uh, they call me La Gorda, my whole family. He's like, oh, Gorda, don't be a chicken. I've been through millions of hurricanes. Nothing's going to happen. And I think it's more like a male Cuban thing. I'm not leaving my house. This is a really well-built house. This is a well-built house. This is a well-constructed house. This is a really well-built house. That was his thing. Jenny and her brothers called their dad the Hulk. And we used to make him, you know, like flex and do the growling thing. And uh, he was a big, strong man, huge back, huge wrists. Oscar Del Campo didn't just look like the Hulk. He was the kind of dad who threatened to take Jenny's boyfriends out back and give them the business if they ever tried to touch her. With the storm bearing down, the Hulk goes to work, moving patio furniture, boarding up windows, and tying up the horses in the stable behind the house. Jenny stays inside watching TV. 14 miles north, at the Miami Metro Zoo, 
Ron McGill is helping move animals, African serval cats, parrots, pythons, and flamingos. One of the things I remember seeing is that there were no native animals around. It was kind of really spooky in the fact that there were no egrets, there were no ibis. I didn't see anything except our animals in our collection on exhibit. Whereas you normally see tons of native animals, kind of freeloaders that come in to get food. They were gone, as if they knew something was coming. They knew it was time to get out of Dodge. Flamingos are fragile. They can easily break a leg, so the zoo waits until the very last minute to move them. Ron and about 20 other workers stand on the edge of the flamingo pond and surround the birds. That's when all of a sudden they go, okay, everybody, one, two, go. And everybody goes in and just grabs as many flamingos as they can. And we're handing them up. we got people on the bridge. We're handing them up one by one. And they're walking into the bathroom, letting them go to the bathroom, coming back, getting more. person literally hand walks them, holds them up to his chest, hands walk them, hand walks to the bathroom, opens the bathroom door, lets them go. And they immediately go to the other flamingo that's already been left out. It's the first flamingo that gets in the bathroom that's kind of freaked out. Oh, my God, I'm the only one here. It's just a lot of flapping and flamingos make a very unattractive sound. Just... An hour later, all the flamingos are in the bathroom. All these long pink legs and necks are crammed between the sinks and bathroom stalls. 20 to 30 flamingos just standing there. And they're all in the corner, hovering in the corner, just kind of looking at you and looking at their own reflection in the mirror on the wall over the sink. And you look at their faces and they're kind of like, what the heck is this? Ron McGill pulls a camera out of his pocket and without looking through the viewfinder, snaps a photo. Hi. This is 823. Near the falls in South Dade, David Zabik records his family as they get ready. He's 14 years old. Hurricane is less than 24 hours away. Preparations are underway. Swing set will be taken care of. Everyone's going nuts in the house. That's David's 11-year-old sister, Stacy. Show the cat. Here's the patio, emptied for the hurricane. Slide, tied down to the tree. Say la vie. It's going. Sunday noon. Local authorities begin advising the population on radio and television of compulsory evacuation measures for people thought to be directly in the path of the hurricane and living close to the sea. They warn that the hurricane is reaching force three to four, just one below the strongest level. Hurricane Andrew caught many people off guard. I'm not taking it that seriously. That's when Miami-Dade emergency manager Kate Hale urged us to take this very seriously. Please get to wherever you're going to ride out this storm as quickly as possible. We issued the evacuation order for a Category 3. This is Kate Hale. Not long thereafter, I'd say probably within about 20 minutes, we were contacted by the Hurricane Center, indicating that the storm was rapidly deepening and expected to be a Category 4 when it made landfall. That means a lot of people don't hear that second evacuation order. They had spent valuable time and energy doing what they needed to be able to stay in place when, in fact, they now had to turn around and leave. And a lot of people who do turn around and leave have heard early reports that the storm is headed north for the Dade-Broward line. They head south, into the path of the storm. In Miami Shores, Jeffrey Philp isn't taking Andrew quite as seriously. First of all, our (laughs) our preparation was pathetic. We really didn't think that it was going to happen. We were there dithering around, and then all of a sudden, the threat became imminent. Uh, So I started off and went out to Home Depot to get plywood and everything else. It was all sold out. So I got two pieces of plywood from a guy who was selling it off the back of a pickup truck. 
Normally, it would have cost $10, and we paid like $80 just for those two. They were robbing us blind, and they knew it, and we knew they were robbing us blind. In that moment, you really don't care. And it still wasn't enough, but at least I covered the front windows, and then we did what everybody else did. We duct-taped the window and everything else, and we sort of just said a prayer and locked up the house and went inside. Hey, this is Wendy. I've been thinking about you. I hope you got out of town. I just hope everything's going to be all right, and I'll talk to you soon, I hope. Bye. Baron Scherer is a young guy, new to South Beach from South Carolina. His friends and family up north are starting to worry. Hey, it's Elaine calling. It was 20 to 8 on Sunday night. I guess you were probably evacuated. I just found out a few minutes ago, but things are looking pretty grim down there, so I'm thinking about you. I guess I'll call your mom, see what she knows. I hope everything's okay. See you later. Uh, let's see our next uh, Jose Marti Middle School on 24th Avenue. This is in Hialeah. Those are Hialeah numbers now, and I always have to think real hard when I get into Hialeah numbers. But this in downtown Miami, Brian Norcross is giving out evacuation instructions. He's been on television all day. And I think the 57 there refers to Red Road. So. So we're uh, both confused in Hialeah. Well, I'll tell you what, I, I, I don't know who thought of that in Hialeah, but I hope they're not living anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a long day, hasn't yeah, it, Brian? Media warnings in Florida begin to become more and more urgent. Although these are now tended to become somewhat bewildering, the main thrust is that a major hurricane, possibly of maximum force, will hit southern Florida starting at some time around 2 a.m. on Monday, August the 24th and lasting for some hours. Along the coast, indeed, the winds will probably be strongest. But as we've said, said, time after time, it's not the strong winds that break the windows that destroy homes. Okay, it's not the strong winds. It's the debris in the The wind. Projectiles. It's the projectiles. It's little bits of anything. It's just a waiting. It's just a waiting wait. And and <laughs> my friend, my friend Jeffrey Knapp, uh, he came across with a, a bottle of barbancourt rum, and we sat out on the patio until it was, you know, like time to go. And so we we did a toast, and Jeffrey went back to his family over in uh, Miami Beach. Barry, this is your daddy. I was just finding out which way the wind blowing down there. I hope to talk to you. It's about 10 o'clock, so I'll probably turn it in a little bit. But uh, we'll, we'll call you later. All right? Take it easy. Back in Homestead, Oscar Del Campo is finished preparing his family's well-built house. Before bed, his daughter Jenny calls her friends. She makes sure her dad's not listening. She sneaks a call to her boyfriend. You know, you kind of say goodbye, good luck, talk to you later. Um, but later was a lot later. <laughs> it, was, it was rough. The world kind of changed within those those hours. There was this first band that came by. It was really exciting. You know, you get wet and the sideways wind. You're like, ooh, this is going to be fun. That was that one cloud that you saw. Remember you pointed to it? It had a little storm in it. You know, one by one, things start to go. It's almost like a death. You know, like how vision goes and hearing goes and then finally 
There's that flash of light. Well, it's almost like that. The weather got worse and worse. At about 1.10 a.m., the electricity goes. Oh, transformers blowing. I'm just seeing these... But the transformers, they wouldn't fail all the way. So you would have this electricity exploding out of the transformers. The lights would go out in your house, come back on. So you got this oscillating pattern of fail, blue light flashing, come back. fail, house lights dimming, come back on. And I'm putting the camera up against the window, which has no protection at all. I don't know, something hit the window. And you can hear my mom going, what are you doing next to the window? Get out of there. And the worst is yet to go. That's when it got serious. Tell me when we're back on the air, John. Okay. Oh, we understand okay. we are back now. Okay, well, now we're back on Channel 4. Let me say this so that, that everybody gets out their radio. Get your radio tuned now to Y100 because in spite of the fact we lost power at Channel 4 here very temporarily, uh, we were on the air on Y100 through that whole event. County police on fire, do you have an emergency? We were receiving hundreds of calls at one time. I was the chief for emergency medical services for Miami-Dade Fire Rescue, and the calls that night were shocking. I have a seven-month-old pregnant lady here. Sparks and flames uh, from the tree, from a hit the tree and wrapped around it. My father can't breathe, he needs some power. People were calling in, we're in the bathroom with mattresses covering their heads to protect themselves. County police on fire, do you have an emergency? Yes. What is your emergency? We were frustrated because there's nothing we could do about yeah, it. Please dispatch me, officer, to 20. I've asked you, what is your emergency, ma'am? The store is out. What does that mean? No light, no generator, no nothing. People decided that they weren't going to evacuate. Then at the last minute, they're saying, oh, my God, I've made a mistake. Somebody come get me. Okay, and what do you think a police officer is going to do for I just, you? I just need a police officer to take me home. No, ma'am, a police officer is not going to take you home. Hello? A police officer is not going to take you home. They're not going out in this storm any more than you're going out in this storm. People don't get it that when our guys get there, they would have to get off the truck and get in the house, and they can't do that. When the wind's blowing 40, 50, or 130 miles an hour, it's extremely dangerous for our people, and we weren't going to send them out there. But you are a lot of help. Okay. Good night, ma'am. We talked about uh, making the move. Do you think t now is the time? The uh, center that we're talking about is directly behind the studio. We could feel the building kind of move. So, uh, you feel good here, John? That you're ready to go? All right. Uh... It occurred to me if we're telling people to go to their closets, maybe we should be doing that both from a pure crew safety standpoint and also from an inspirational standpoint. Clearly, we can hear it. Outside, let me see. I'm all wireless. I'll tell you what. Uh... Here we are, Ryan. We're all set. <laughs> We're all set. I'll tell you what. This is the safest spot, without without a doubt. You know, we were in the hallways with mattresses over our heads. You know, I went and got a mattress off the bed. We were, you know, the three of us, me and my wife and my dog, were, were in the bathroom at that Two point. Two male adults, three female adults, five children, a Yorkshire Terrier, and an Alsatian. Five of us. We all got into a regular size closet. I'm a 6'7 guy and my wife happens to be 6 feet 3 inches tall. My back was right up against the commode and her back was right up against the vanity. So we were like curled up face to face looking at each other with Buddy the Bull Terrier right in between us. The two smallest children begin to cry. One of them becomes incontinent. The elder 10 year old girl picks up the Yorkshire Terrier which is in danger of drowning. And I started to freak out because I'm claustrophobic. I was like I can't breathe, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. And my dad was a really strong, 
strong man. And he just looked at me and he's like, hey, control yourself. I can't even open the door. The pressure is so great that this door is about to pop. It is buckling. And I think I'm going to get out of here. You would feel the atmosphere inside the house sucking out. And then all of a sudden your ears popped. It was like unbelievable. Your ears popped as if you were going down a mountain or up a huge elevator. County police on fire. Do you have an emergency? Okay, ma'am, can I ask you a question? Go ahead. Okay. There was a long-time belief. Is it more recommendable that we open windows? If we just open the window, we could release that pressure inside the house, and that would be a safer thing to do. I can't answer that, ma'am. I don't know. All right, thank you very much, ma'am. You're welcome. In actual fact, air inside your body is still high pressure. It's low pressure on the outside of your eardrums, so your eardrums are bulging out. So opening the window doesn't help. It actually even makes it worse, if anything. Does anybody know what that sound was that we heard up above us here just a, just a moment ago? Um, that was a very interesting sound. It sounded as if something dropped on the roof, didn't it? It's what, exactly what it sounded like, yes. Uh, maybe I, we can uh, punch that radar I don't care. If we, why don't we uh, just leave that shot up, and I would be, I would, did I just hear that sound again? Yeah, I did too. Um, you hear your heart beating. I can feel the walls breathing. It's just like... And we, we were hearing this... Whoo. Just so this... Whoo. I remember hearing my screen door smacking around in the rain. And then all of a sudden, boom, and this bright light comes in the room and I realize the piece of plywood blew off the door. And then all of a sudden I didn't hear it anymore. So I thought, oh good, the wind is blowing down. And then I realized the whole screen blew away. This glass has many cracks in it. It is about to blow. You can see the wind starting to come through. People's uh, satellite dishes were hitting your house. Boats were flying by. You know, we had very large trees. Those headed across the plains like tumbleweeds. The sliding doors in the atrium were bowing in and out. Oh, I never thought glass could bend that way. I just want you to listen and hear this wind is about 140 mile an hour wind we're experiencing. This is unbelievable. Our lives are seriously in danger. Glass is flying everywhere. We are stuck in the hallway. I'm signing off for a little while. Uh, where's this? See if you can find us. There's two by fours we had before. Maybe we can brace this with the two by fours. We have another okay, stand woman by on the in phone. South Miami. We have someone else on the phone who's in dire straits. Hello? Yes. Where are you? At 137 and 111 Street. And what happened? And half the roof went in. So, um, I want to know if we should open a window and let the... No, no, don't worry about opening windows here. Where, where are you in the house compared to the part where the roof came in? In the middle. I want you to stay exactly where you are. Nobody should go out. You are not out of the storm yet. The storm is going to be with you for some time yet. Oh, God. Destruction looks pretty bad. Hurricane is still going. At the height of the storm, to hear that, that, that sound. It's almost like a train coming through. It's just a, oh. It sounded like a train. A freight train. And just how the building was, was shaking. It just, it reverberates in the entire house inside my head. I'm going, this is really bad. God help me. Holy shit. 
fighting the wind to keep the closet door closed. And someone said, we're going to die. We're going to die. We're going to die. Um, my dad just looked at us and he's like, well, you know, if we die, we die together. You're listening to Remembering Andrew, a special production of WLRN Miami Herald News. We'll be back in one minute. This is Remembering Andrew, a special production of WLRN Miami Herald News. I'm Kenny Malone. And I'm Alicia Zuckerman. Twenty years ago, Hurricane Andrew tore through Dade County. We've been telling the story of Hurricane Andrew through home videos, archival news footage, and personal recollections. Now we're taking you from the morning after the storm through the following days. It's Monday morning. People all over South Dade are emerging from the cramped spaces where they cowered as Andrew passed through. Someone said, we're going to die. We're going to die. We're going to die. My dad just looked at us and he's like, well, you know, if we die, we die together. Just after daybreak, Jenny Del Campo and her family finally opened the door to the closet where they rode out the storm. They look up and see blue sky. The roof has blown off. The windows are shattered. Decorative brass figurines from the living room are embedded in the drywall. Oscar Del Campo's well-built house is in ruins. Homestead is in ruins. Chrome Avenue was not there. There was a tractor in front of my house. There was dead cows and horses all over the place. We were like, wow, what the, what the hell's going on? Jenny's own horses have somehow survived Hurricane Andrew. Her dad, Oscar, immediately gets to work gutting and rebuilding. This time, he'll make sure his home really is well-built. WTVJ weatherman Brian Norcross continues his marathon broadcasts for the next several days. Get down here and fight us back for now into what was the core of the storm. Of course, the trees are down. I mean, it's, uh, the foliage is, is a disaster here. The aftermath. We venture outside and are faced with scenes of destruction of Hiroshima-like proportions. I remember walking outside the door. Anybody who's seen the movie The Wizard of Oz, when the house lands and it's black and white and she opens the door and it's color, she looks into Oz, it was the absolute opposite for this. There was no color, all the paint on the house, everything was gone. It doesn't look like a town anymore. I mean, you look down a street and you don't even know what street you're on anymore. I couldn't even recognize the street. It looked like a moonscape because there was nothing but nothing. Does this look like where we live? This looks like we're going to the end of destruction. I couldn't find any addresses or because all the landmarks were destroyed. Trees were down. Trees that yesterday were just full and, and beautiful. They're just like skeletons now. There are leaves everywhere. No grass. Roots everywhere in the air. 
and the smell of earth. Heck of a way to prune your uh, heavy trees. That whole white noise of activity of civilization was erased and you would hear the chainsaws and the helicopters. That was like the music of post-Andrew. Bob, here's the barnacle. Look at the debris line there at the barnacle, halfway up the yard. And that's the same place the debris line was in 1926. In the 26 hurricane, yeah. Same, same exact place. The hurricane water is brackish and smells of sewage. My friends who lived on the water had, uh, you know, fish all in their house. Water damage. Water was coming through the vent and the light. All the clothes are wet. The best description I have is, if, you know, as if God came in there with a 25-mile-wide weed whacker and just weed whacked the whole thing to the ground, every tree, every building. I mean, just imagine that a bulldozer went 15 miles in a row starting from the University of Miami. Houses have no windows. Most have lost all their doors as well, and some have collapsed completely. There was furniture in the streets. From several houses down in your front yard. Wet fiberglass insulation falling into tropical plants that had been crushed. Roofs were missing, power lines were down. Cars, airplanes, pieces of the monorail track upside down, twisted like pretzels, wrapped around trees like tissue paper. What you're seeing is actual sand embedded into the door, the front door here, from the pressure. Unbelievable. They're using words like war zone, nuclear bomb, and devastation. Like literally a bomb had gone off. It just looked like a bomb went off. Like a bombed out city street. Like a nuclear bomb. Nuclear holocaust. And I mean, it was was surreal. I'll tell you what, gentlemen, we need to refuel Sky 4 and continue our survey here with Dr. Sheets. And we'll be back with you shortly as we continue our tour of the uh, devastation here from Hurricane Andrew. This is Bob Sheets. I'm Brian Norcross, live at Sky 4. There have been, at this point, 14 confirmed deaths uh, in unincorporated Dade, uh, and one in the city, so that gets you 15. Now, August 24, Noemi Browning, 12, deaths, is uh, killed by a beam that falls on her in the bedroom of her home on Southwest 170th Avenue. August 24th, Vidal Perez, 49. August 24th, Francisco Sospera, 74. Robert Moak, 32. Miguel Pulido, 62. Andrew Roberts, 25, is found crushed inside his collapsed is home. Is thrown from a storage trailer. Refuses to South. evacuate her mobile home on South. Is hit by debris as he seeks shelter in a Eleda Vargas, 22, has come to Miami from the Dominican Republic to have her baby. At 3 a.m., she complains of severe headaches. Rescue vehicles can't reach her, and she dies from a cerebral hemorrhage at 9.30 a.m. August 24th, her son... Referred to by the medical examiner as viable fetus Vargas does not survive. Rumors are flying everywhere. Monkeys with AIDS running wild. A guy from the Bahamas carried by the wind all the way to Miami. 150 migrant workers killed in one fell swoop. They're not true, and the government sets up a hotline to control these rumors. In Kendall, Felix Martinez hears a rumor about hundreds of corpses in refrigerated trucks and wants to find out for himself. He's just out of college, an aspiring filmmaker. Felix gets in the car with his sister and her boyfriend. They head south on Old Cutler Road. Felix videotapes the trip. Unreal. A boat washed up on the side of the road. This is on uh, South Bayshore Drive in Coconut Grove, Kennedy Park. We started shooting kind of like for fun and having fun with it and enjoying the experience for what we could enjoy. The deeper south they drive, the worse the damage gets, and the car goes quiet. And the gravity of that 
was seeping in as we were going further south. Somewhere south of Perrine, someone turns on the car stereo. Maybe to break the silence, maybe out of force of habit, a cassette starts to play. See, a lot of people teaching live do a bunch of affirmations going, It's Tony Robbins, the motivational speaker. And you hear Tony Robbins saying, how does it make you feel? What are some other things that are going good in your life? How does it make you feel? Let me ask you another one. What are you really proud of in your life right now? And you see this home where the second story of the, of the structure is completely sheared off. And the thing that I'm thinking about is that was somebody's room. And what, what did they have to do to get out of that? So as we're driving south, we're going south physically and metaphorically. Or are you just feeling better about the possibilities of your future? In other words, each day, you might want to just keep a journal. Jot down to the side to keep a success journal. The power is out all over Dade County. Outside Baptist Hospital in Kendall, there's a line of people waiting to get in. The hospital is running on a generator. There's no air conditioning. The place is sweltering. And it's not sterile. Susan Holtzman is working the phones. The hallways are filling up like a scene from a movie. The railroad yard scene in Gone with the Wind, where there were just wounded lying everywhere. Laceration wounds and puncture wounds. There was a man that came in, and he had weathered the storm on a boat in a marina, and he had debris embedded in his back because he had been exposed to the wind. Susan is nine months pregnant. I noticed that the baby hadn't been kicking, and I wasn't really feeling any movement. So I just thought, okay, don't panic. You're in the right place. Susan makes her way through the hot, crowded hallways to labor and delivery. She finds a nurse and says, Today is my due date, and the baby doesn't seem to be kicking. A nurse wraps a heart monitor around her belly. The heart rate looks okay. Then the heart rate drops to zero. There was a lot of yelling, orders being shouted. Get her clothes off, and they told me, we're going to break your water here. Um, So that means that they have to insert a sharp instrument and... That's not really something you would normally do, I don't believe, in a hallway. Since the hospital's not sterile, a cesarean section isn't an option, so the doctor induces labor. Susan has had three miscarriages before. She's trying not to panic. That's what we had been doing for days, is don't panic, walk through it. It's only a roof, it's only a house. This is only a baby that's not kicking, I'm just going to move forward. It's a girl. There she is, our little Elise. Happy birthday. Susan's husband, Lou, is there with a video camera. See her little feetsie and her belly button. She cried like, like this little teeny kitten. She was still kind of, you know, messy and bloody and, um, you know, moving through everything that we had been through those few days destruction and the and the fear and the chaos I just I thought you know this is one tough little girl (laughs) 
Our refrigerator is now warm, the freezer is thawing out and our search begins for ice, sustenance and a telephone to tell everyone that we are safe. Philip Grice, the British Consul General in Miami, is still documenting every minute of the storm and its aftermath. With the power out and many stores closed, people have started looting. I stop off at a 7-Eleven store. It is being systematically looted by a gang of seven or eight youths. On seeing me, one points a gun and I depart rapidly. Ten minutes later, from our home, I hear the wail of police sirens arriving at the 7-Eleven. Too late, everything has been stolen. August 26th, John Abel, 67, a retired accountant from Key Largo, has a heart attack while helping family protect their warehouse from looters. The estimated death toll as a direct result of Hurricane Andrew is 26, but in the chaos afterwards, there are dozens more. August 25th, John Byers, 22, of Homestead, is struck in the head by a tree as he cleans up debris at the Ocean Reef Club in North Key Largo. He dies later at Jackson Memorial August Hospital. August 25th, Emma Grace Parker, 74, falls from her seventh floor apartment either trying to open the window, clear debris, or remove duct tape put on for the storm. August 26th, John Castillo, 36, of Hialeah, a schizophrenic who attacked his sister and mom with furniture because he was upset over the lack of electricity and ice, dies of a heart attack in the back of a police car transporting him to jail. We understand uh, Channel 4's Carrie Sanders is standing by right now. Uh, at uh, Homestead City Hall, where there has been another confrontation, this one apparently over ice. Is Food right? is rotting, air conditioning is out, and at least one person has already died from heat stroke. Ice is now a precious commodity. These people will be here all day, eight hours, standing online for ice. Just to get ice. Just to get ice. Outside a beaten down Publix and Homestead, people are getting desperate. There's no shade. People are dripping with sweat, waiting in line on the hot pavement. My son is ready to have a nervous breakdown because of this. Please tell President Bush to hurry up and send help. Federal aid is nowhere in sight. We need help in Leisure City. These people in Washington, they're not helping us. We need help. Help. Off to the side, a guy sells ice out of a pickup truck. He shovels it directly from the truck bed into laundry baskets and coolers. 12 pounds for a dollar and a half. The guy in line tells him people shouldn't have to pay for ice. The guy selling ice jumps off his truck and says he has a pistol. People from the line start stealing the ice. A fist fight breaks out. There are a lot of problems down here, and uh, people are asking the question, why is it that you can bring aid to Somalia? Why is it that the United States can bring aid to areas like... Um, Bosnia, Herzegovina, and yet here we are in Homestead. The military is unable to deliver the food down to this community. I heard a couple of gunshots on the next block, and I was like, oh no, this, this is bad. Parts of South Dade are becoming lawless. You know, everybody was waiting for the cavalry to come. Everybody was waiting for federal aid. And Ed McLean had owned his house in the Redlands for all of 11 days. Now it's completely destroyed. So Ed, his wife, and their dog are at his parents' house in Homestead. People weren't going to work because their work wasn't there anymore. And people literally would just, I mean, hang around and sit on their front porch and drink all day. The Budweiser distributorship there got hammered very badly, and they, they were giving cases away for like 350. 
and people you know would have stacks of beer in their garage and just hanging out drinking it hot even it has a four-year-old bull terrier named buddy the spuds mckenzie dog or the target dog of today but he slept through the entire storm curled up in the bathroom between ed and his wife ed's outside working on his parents house when he notices buddy is missing i heard a couple of gunshots on the next block and i was like oh no this this is bad Ed runs around the corner and sees Buddy on the ground in front of a children's birthday party. Blood's pumping out of his head, and I'm sure that he's dead. Some drunk guy had come out of nowhere, pulled out a gun, and shot Buddy twice in the head. Actually, one of the bullets uh, came down his shoulder, hit the sidewalk, and went into a car sitting in the driveway with all the children sitting right there. Amazingly, Buddy survives. Homestead is coming unhinged. People are sleeping with guns. They spray paint looters will be shot on what's left of their houses. Homestead city manager Alex Muxo gets in front of a CNN camera and falls apart. I've been in Homestead now 15 years, and you see these pictures on TV. And you, you really... We've worked so hard in this community to build what we got. It's 12 years of my life. We just got to start over. Chuck Lanza is at the Fire Rescue Communications headquarters. He's in charge of all the rescue units in Dade County. He's lost communication with all of them. One of his captains walks in. Hadn't shaved, his hair was sticking up. I mean, he looked he looked like he'd been out on a binge. And I told him, I said, hey, you need to go shave before you come in. And he looked at me like, what? That's not a priority anymore. It is a priority. He says, yeah, it just doesn't matter anymore. Another captain walks in, same dazed look. I said, oh, we've got different counties coming there. And, and he says, it's not enough. I said, well, we got the state. And whatever, whatever I would tell him, he would still say, It's not going to be enough. Everything that's coming is not enough. We are going to have more casualties because we're going to have people who are dehydrated, who are without food, babies that need formula. On August 27th, Dade County's Emergency Operations Director Kate Hale is at her wit's end. We are doing everything we can. We are the walking wounded. Most of our resources were either destroyed or have now been depleted. She calls a press conference pleading for federal assistance. Dade County is running these distribution sites. We've got the hospitals in place with the help of the public health service and our firefighters. But for God's sakes, would you please cut it out and help us out down here? And and that's all I've got to say. That's not all Kate Hale's got to say. All I know are a lot of people are saying, why aren't we doing more? We're doing everything we can. Where in the hell is the Calvary on this one? Within hours of Kate Hale's press conference, federal aid begins to mobilize. Tonight, I want to report to the nation on the aftermath of Hurricane Andrew and the effort required to help... After five days, the president called in the armed forces to organize disaster relief. And tonight, as we speak, almost 20,000 troops are on the ground, assisting in everything from providing meals... So I suppose you're looking forward to the kitchen... Yeah. Oh, yeah. yes, we sure Oh, yes. ...to erecting tent cities. If one person would please bring a count of the amount of people in their tent, bring by a list of complaints 
or problems inside your tent, such as ants, bugs, etc. In Florida, a curfew is in place and the National Guard and local police patrol the streets. But the situation is getting worse, not better. The mosquitoes have returned and rats rummage the piles of garbage still outside everyone's homes. The mental and physical health of the population is deteriorating. You're listening to Remembering Andrew, a special production of WLRN Miami Herald News. I'm Kenny Malone. And I'm Alicia Zuckerman. 20 years ago, Hurricane Andrew changed South Florida. In the final part of this hour, we'll take you through the weeks, months, and years after the storm. Some people have been without power for months. Some phones don't get turned back on until Christmas. In total, the storm has caused $26.5 billion in damage. At the time, it's the costliest natural disaster in U.S. history. Jenny Del Campo and her family are living in a cramped apartment in Doral, paid for by their insurance. Her dad, Oscar, is working tirelessly to rebuild their home. He insists on doing everything himself. He buys the materials, he pours the concrete, he manages the workers. All this time, he's also running a local chain of eyeglass stores. You could tell that he was just run ragged, like tired. His eyes would get red and, you know, you could just tell that this man had sweated all day, had worked all day, and then he was home where he was going to eat, take a shower, and, and he would knock out and go to sleep. Jenny's never seen her dad like this before, and she's having problems of her own. The first time it happened, I was in school, I was in computer class. It starts when Jenny forgets her own name. And I was taking a test, and I went to write my name, and I did not know what it was. Jenny starts to freak out. Where the hell am I? And I was like, wow, what's going on here, you know? And I went up to the teacher, and, and I said, where am I? She's like, what are you talking about, Jenny? And then I'm like, okay, so I guess my name... My name must be Jenny. The first episode only lasts a minute, but they keep coming. Jenny's in the car with her brother driving. She thinks a stranger's driving and considers jumping out. She goes blank in the apartment in Doral. She locks herself in the bathroom until it goes away. Every few weeks, Jenny forgets. Her mom and her dad are terrified. They took me to every doctor that you can think of. I had brain scans, CAT scans. Um, I had electrodes put in my brain and goop and things done to me and blood work and... Nothing. Then finally, a neurologist asks her parents... Has there been a huge change in environment? They were like, oh, yeah, we were in Hurricane Andrew. <laughs> we lost our house. And, you know, and that's when I think the neurologist said... I think, you know, she should see a therapist. Jenny is diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. She feels like it's the last thing her father needs right now. Um, I missed all that he was going through and going back and forth and rebuilding the house. Um, It makes me feel bad. I put an an added stress on them because a parent's fear of something wrong with your child, I think, is stronger than any other stress you may be going through. When Hurricane Andrew hit South Florida, a lot of people needed help. One man in Miami is being hailed as a hero for the job he did. If it wasn't for Brian Norcross. Brian Norcross. Brian Norcross. Brian Norcross. We were were listening to Brian Norcross. He saved lives. WTVJ meteorologist Brian Norcross may have saved countless lives. The information that he gave me was so, so important. It was like 
I was not alone. I had a voice in the wilderness. Brian Norcross has become a major celebrity. Fan mails pouring in, poems, scented letters, marriage proposals. He walks into a restaurant and gets a standing ovation. He flies on an airplane and gets pulled aside for a private dinner with the captain and crew. People in suits on the street would come up to me and start crying. Just, you know, my family listened to you and made it through. And Let me tell you about our co-hosts for tonight's event. In late September, Gloria and Emilio Estefan hold a hurricane relief concert at Joe Robbie Stadium. Whoopi Goldberg. Gloria Estefan. And Andy Garcia. Brian Norcross is a featured guest. When I walked out there and Emilio introduced me and I walked out and... 60,000 people or whatever it was there and they were screaming and I'd never experienced that obviously but when everybody is screaming at you there is energy coming out of there because they're all exhaling at you at the same time you feel the washing over you see these people were screaming and screaming and screaming and and then they started crying and and uh, I mean it was a surreal surreal event At the relief concert, the duo No End is playing its Hurricane Andrew anthem live for the first time. Somehow We Will Survive was written by two cousins from South Florida, Zach Ziskin and Bruce Berman. They were inspired by We Are the World and wanted to do something for charity. The song raised more than $80,000. I was still, you know, only 18 years old, so I hadn't done a whole lot of performing in my life. This is Zach Ziskin. It was very nerve-wracking, obviously, to have one of your first major public performances not be in some little dinky club, but on this main stage that was going to be also simulcast on the big screens at Joe Robbie Stadium in front of all these people there. So. Needless to say, I, I was definitely feeling some nerves. Ugh, I hated this song. Jody Nabel had clients like Win dixie and Coca-Cola. Anytime they were mentioned in the news, it was her job to let them know. In the process, she kept hearing that song. It was everywhere. Just over and over, it was like on a loop. And I couldn't listen to it anymore. I just didn't want to hear it anymore. I just didn't like the vocal on it. I didn't like the arrangement. I didn't like anything about it. It was just, I just couldn't, it was just so hokey. And like, I was like, if I ever meet this person, I'm going to smack them. Six years later, Jody Nabel does meet songwriter Zach Ziskin at Tobacco Road, a bar in Miami. After that night, they become friends. They start dating. This one goes out to Jody Ziskin. Yay. Zach and Jody Ziskin have been married for more than a decade. We were told we must leave and find shelter. We boarded the windows and huddled together. As the roof blew off, we held each other tight. And we asked God, not to take away our lives. 
It took more than 100 days for Ed McLean's power to come back on. Me and my wife and my dog were huddled underneath the mattress. His dog Buddy had trouble walking after being shot. So Ed spent many long days rebuilding his house and rehabilitating his dog. Working on the house, working on the dog. Buddy the Bull Terrier lived to be about 15. After taking several years off from emergency management, Kate Hale Where in the hell is the cavalry on this one? is now doing the same work in James City County, Virginia. After Kate Hale left, Chuck Lanza He looked like he'd been out on a binge took over as emergency operations director for Miami-Dade County. He now runs Broward County's EOC. The city of Homestead has struggled to recover from Hurricane Andrew. In the last decade, though, it went through a building boom. Its population nearly doubled. Now, Homestead is struggling to recover from one of the worst man-made disasters in history, the foreclosure crisis. At the Miami Metro Zoo, close to 100 birds died when an aviary collapsed. The flamingos survived. Ron McGill's spontaneous photo of the flamingos in the bathroom became one of the most iconic images of Hurricane Andrew. Some of those flamingos are still alive today. Susan and Lou Holtzman's tough little girl like this little teeny kitten and she turns 20 on August 26th. When I have a child, I will be freaking out in perfect conditions. Elise Holtzman is about to start her sophomore year at the University of Maryland. Somehow we will survive. Oscar Del Campo eventually rebuilt the house and homestead. The Hulk made it bigger and better. He built a terrace. He expanded the family room. The driveway had so many lights, the family joked that it looked like a landing strip. But there were things that didn't get fixed, like the door to the closet where the family rode out the storm. It had, it had wool on it and everything. We, had to, we fought with that door to keep it shut so that we could stay safe in there. So he kept the door. As soon as the Del Campos moved back into their house, Jenny's forgetting spells stopped. I don't know how to explain that to anybody. I, I almost hate saying it, but everything was okay. My house was okay. We were okay. Life resumed its normal track, if you will. Um, I kind of forgot about the whole thing. I kind of forgot about what went on and how messed up the city was. Or We were okay now. But her dad, Oscar, wasn't doing well. He started getting high blood pressure, had to take medication. Um, kind of like, I, it broke him, maybe physically as well, making sure everything was done right. I, I think it took, um, besides the um, psychological toll of, of going through what he went through and knowing that, you know, I didn't protect my kids at that time or whatever, it was kind of like his downfall. Like he just went getting worse and worse, and eventually, you know, he passed away of a heart attack. November 12, 2000, Oscar Del Campo, 51, dies of a heart attack following eight years of high blood pressure. Jenny still blames her dad's death on the storm. Jenny Del Campo is now Jenny Bethencourt. She and her husband live with their son in South Miami. The family sold the well-built house. Jenny and her brother have started a new family business. They sell insurance. Channing, it's aiming right at us. 
I want to go on hourly updates. I want to rerun the specials, uh, put more reporters out in the field, and, and I want to get the helpline up and running. In 1993, a made-for-TV movie on NBC called Triumph Over Disaster told the Brian Norcross story. Hold it, hold it, Brian. Are we on official watch yet? By late today. Please, go with me now. You won't be sorry. For the last two years, Brian Norcross has been a national hurricane specialist for the Weather Channel. Brian splits his time between Atlanta and Miami Beach. People still come up to him, thank him, hug him. Obviously, it was a turning point in their life. They, they kind of count their life before Andrew and after Andrew. People felt like they had survived a war, and somehow I had you know, given them the answer. I mean, in actual fact, uh, you know, I had given them a voice. Uh, generally, they, they would have made it through without me. But, uh, but, you know, people attached having that voice as some sort of sanity check while it was happening. Postscript. Philip Grice is now the mayor of Carmarthen, Wales. The British government uses his account of Hurricane Andrew to train any consul placed in a hurricane zone. The question asked is, how could an area prepared over the years and immediately for a hurricane suffer so dramatically? The answer, I believe, is that even if one takes the best and most stringent of precautions, nature and fate together will always have something up their sleeve. This has been Remembering Andrew, a special presentation of WLRN Miami Herald News. You can find our entire Remembering Andrew series, including lots of other stories about Hurricane Andrew, at WLRN.org. We produced this hour with Trina Sargalski and Sammy Mack. We also had tons of help from the following people. Diego Vizcaino, Terrence Whitney Shepard, Ariana Prothero, Brett Rothfeld, Luke Cohen, Anthony Cave, Georgia Howard, Danny Rivero, Deborah Acosta, John Dorschner, Rick Iredam, Ruth Morris, Ana Vesiana Suarez, Pierre Taylor, Paul Leary, Mike Wilson, Christina Vega, Kelly Mitchell, Rick Stone, Marva Hinton, Jackie Skevin, Phil Latzman, Christine DiMattei, and everyone at the WLRN Miami Herald Newsroom, Dan Gretsch's news director of WLRN Miami Herald News, and a very special thanks to the Miami Herald for many things, including the list of those who lost their lives as a result of Hurricane Andrew. Archival sound and footage comes from the Lynn and Lewis Wolfson the Second Moving Image Archives, WTVJ, WSVN, Doug Phillips, Wayne Rooston, David Zabick, and Felix Martinez. Also thanks to Kevin McGurgan, Bruce Berman, David Samayoa, as well as WLRN's Peter J. Meritz, Adrian Kennedy, John Labonia, and everyone at Friends of WLRN. Our Remembering Andrew series includes stories from more than 100 people in the community who reached us through Facebook, Twitter, Twitter, and the Public Insight Network. You've been listening to Remembering Andrew. I'm Alicia Zuckerman. And I'm Kenny Malone.